Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Trying to meet an expectation. Greetings from Moab, Utah, a place I have wanted to visit for 30 years or so. I first read a book called Desert Solitaire when I was uh, in college back uh, in upstate New York in the early 80s. The book blew my mind. It's it's blown a lot of minds. Uh, it's written by a guy named Edward Abbey, who was uh, from Pennsylvania, found himself studying philosophy, I think. He was doing a Ph.D. in philosophy here in the southwest somewhere, University of New Mexico, I believe, maybe Arizona. And um, this was in the 60s, and he got a job uh, for a summer working in uh, Arches National Monument, I think. Um, and uh, he fell in love with the desert, fell in love with this this part of the world, and ended up spending the rest of his life here writing um, a bunch of books. Desert Solitaire was uh, is a collection of essays. It was published... By a small uh, publisher out of New Jersey, I think. I'm, this is all from memory, so forgive me if I if I get things wrong. Um, but he, uh, the the book had like a two thousand print run or something like that, and uh, it was just released and disappeared, as so many books are and do. And but what happened was people started reading it and giving it to their friends and talking about it. And uh, next thing you know, the book became this uh, massive word-of-mouth bestseller, and it's still selling today. Uh, pick it up if, if you want to read something unlike anything else you've ever read. It's, he's a funny guy, Edward Abbey. He's, he's dead now. But he, if you imagine sort of a Hunter S. Thompson, if, you, if Hunter S. Thompson had been an environmentalist, that's sort of where Edward Abbey is. He's like, kind of like a redneck intellectual, gun-toting, pickup truck driving, philosophy spouting, defender of the wilderness. He, he, very interesting guy. Um, and Desert Solitaire is just, uh, you know, just comes straight from the heart. It's uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful little book. Anyway, he writes with such love about this part of the world. I've always wanted to come here. And uh, just now, here we are, 30 years later, I finally uh, found a, a time and a, and a way to get here. So we're here. Cassie and I are here for a few days, five, six days, hiking uh, around in this area. And, man, it's beautiful. Oh, my God. If you follow me on um, Instagram, you see I put up a few photos I've taken in the last few days. Uh, I think I'm Chris Ryan, PhD, same, you know, same moniker I use on Twitter, on um, Instagram. So you can check out some photos there and you'll see what I'm talking about. Red rock, arches, desert, uh, yellow cottonwood leaves fluttering against purple stormy sky. It's just really beautiful. Anyway, so I thought I'd read a little Edward Abbey to you today. Very little. Um Here's something for you. He he talks about about religion, and he's he describes himself. He says, "I'm not an atheist. I'm an earthiest. I believe in the earth." 
He says, if, if a man's imagination were not so weak, so easily tired, if his capacity for wonder not so limited, he would abandon forever such fantasies of the supernatural. He would learn to perceive in water, leaves, and silence more than sufficient of the absolute and marvelous, more than enough to console him for the loss of the ancient dreams. I think that's pretty much where I come down in terms of uh, religion. I, I, I'm more of a... Uh, an animist. I, I think, you know, if you really look closely enough at anything, as, um, as uh, Blake said, William Blake said, if, if, you, if, the, doors of if, how do you say, if the doors of perception were, were cleaned, we would uh, perceive the, you know, the, I'm paraphrasing, uh, we perceive the infinite in a, in a grain of sand or infinite in a moment and eternity in a grain of sand, something like that. Anyway, the point is that if you pay enough attention to the natural world, you'll find all the God you need there. You'll find all the, the, the miracles and the mystery and we don't need churches. We, we just need to wander out into the desert sometime. Edward Abbey also says, if industrial man continues to multiply his numbers and expand his operations, he will succeed in his apparent intention to seal himself off from the natural and isolate himself within a synthetic prison of his own making. Well, there you go. That's pretty much where we're headed. And uh, we're pretty much almost there, it seems. It's interesting. Anyway, after uh, Desert Solitaire became quite successful and he could make a living from writing, he went on and wrote other things, including some novels. I have to say the novels never really worked for me. As a novelist, I think Edward Abbey was kind of... Um, uh, let's just say that wasn't his his real talent as far as I was concerned. He, I thought as an essayist, he's fantastic. As a novelist, kind of kind of pedestrian. But he wrote um, one novel called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which was about a, a bunch of guys who uh, and women who uh, decided that they would uh, take matters into their own hands because uh, there seemed to be no way to stop the the wholesale destruction of the planet um, short of, of getting a little going outside the law. So they decided that they, in this novel, that they would um, sneak into uh, logging camps and uh, sabotage the, the machinery, put sugar in the gas tanks of the bulldozers, and, uh, and uh, then they would uh, spike trees, so they would drive these big nails into trees that wouldn't hurt the tree, but then they'd post that uh, these trees, this grove had been spiked so that the loggers, when they came in, they wouldn't want to uh, harvest these trees because when they're running the trees through their, their mill, the, they'd hit the nails and that would destroy their machinery. And so it was a way actually of protecting the, the trees. So he wrote this novel and, and it seemed it inspired people to actually do this and start this sort of, uh, grassroots, uh, ground level, uh, group called earth first. This is in the eighties. So earth first was, was interesting. Earth first was kind of like anonymous, uh, the hacker group that's, that's acting now. They were not hierarchical, not directed, very loosely organized, um, 
worked with false names and all that. So if anyone got arrested, they actually couldn't turn anyone else in. And, um, you know, of course, there's some similarities to terrorist groups here. And what they were doing was very destructive, although they were very careful never to hurt anyone. It was only um, they were attacking property. They were attacking, you know, machinery and stuff to stop the road building and the logging and the mining and all this stuff that was destroying the the planet. And so, of course, the government reacted, as they tend to do, uh, with extreme violence. They, The United States government termed Earth First a terrorist group, although they'd never hurt anybody. But the government, you know, represents the wealthy and the wealthy own that equipment. And they didn't want to be buying more equipment and they didn't want to lose days, uh, expensive days when they could be ripping up a mountaintop. So people were going to prison for more time for having put some sugar in the gas tank of a bulldozer than they would have if they had killed people. That's the reality of the American legal system. So Edward Abbey uh, here, I'll I'll read something uh, he said in response to this. He said, let's have some precision in language here. Terrorism means deadly violence for a political and or economic purpose carried out against people and other living things and is usually conducted by governments against their own citizens, as at Kent State or in Vietnam or Poland or Latin America, or by corporate entities such as J.P. Getty, Exxon, Mobile Oil, etc., etc., against the land and all creatures that depend upon the land for life and livelihood. A bulldozer ripping up a hillside to strip mine for coal is committing terrorism. The damnation of a flowing river followed by... Yeah, he did say damnation. He's being funny. The damning of a flowing river followed by the drowning of ancient Indian graves of forest and farmland. This is an act of terrorism. Sabotage, on the other hand, means the use of force against inanimate property such as machinery, which is being used to deprive human beings of their rightful work, as in the case of Ned Ludd, which you can read up on Ned Ludd, and that's the origin of the term Luddite. Sabotage, for whatever, for whatever purpose, has never meant and has never implied the use of violence against living creatures. So his point was that the people who were working with Earth First were sabotaging equipment. They were not terrorizing human beings or other living things. Quite the opposite, in fact. Now, before we leave Edward Abbey, uh, one uh, last paragraph. Uh, <laughs> A little advice. People write to me uh, quite a bit for advice, and as, as those of you who have written know, I, I'm very hesitant to give it um, because I don't know what the hell. You know, I was thinking the other day, the most honest words ever spoken are, I don't know. You know, if somebody says, I don't know, you can be pretty sure they're telling you the truth. Anyway, Edward Abbey says, one final paragraph of advice. Do not burn yourselves out. Be as I am, a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, a half-hearted fanatic. (laughs) I like that, a half-hearted fanatic. He goes on, save the other half of yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It's not enough to fight for the land. It's even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. 
So get out there and hunt and fish and mess around with your friends. Ramble out yonder and explore the forest. Climb the mountains. Bag the peaks. Run the rivers. Breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air. Sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness, the lovely, mysterious, and awesome space. Enjoy yourselves. Keep your brain in your head and your head firmly attached to the body, the body active and alive. And I promise you this much. I promise you this one sweet victory over our enemies, over those desk-bound men and women with their hearts in a safe deposit box and their eyes hypnotized by desk calculators. I promise you this. You will outlive the bastards. All right, this week's guest is uh, Jamie Ian Swiss, fantastic sleight-of-hand performer specializing in, uh, he specializes in close-up card magic. I met him in San Diego a few months ago when I was down there um, with uh, Dan Savage, who was receiving an uh, award from the American Humanist Association. And... Um, a friend I was there, uh, a friend introduced me to Jamie. Jamie was in a group of people in, talking with um, Richard Dawkins and some other people. And uh, so I met met the whole group. Of course, as I usually do, I pretended not to know who Richard Dawkins was. You know, it's my weird way of dealing with famous people. Uh, but uh, anyway, I got to know Jamie a little bit. <laughs> Jamie's a, an interesting cat. He's uh, he's been profiled in the New Yorker, which is sort of like about as good as uh, as good as it gets. Uh, pretty amazing, long piece about him, his life, his work. He's recognized as one of the best in the world at doing things right in front of you that you can't believe could actually be happening. Um, I met him in L.A. Uh, we you know we arranged to to do an interview, and I met him in L.A. And I fucked up because I showed up with all my equipment for the the podcast, but I like I had taken the memory card out of my recorder in order to back up an interview I'd done earlier, and I forgot to put it back in. So I show up, and there I am. I don't have, I can't do. It. So we jumped in my car, you know, drove across LA to my parents' house where the card was, ch- talking in the car. He was very. Uh, very kind, very generous. He could have been quite pissed off, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, we'd set up this time, and he came in early. He was working at the Magic Castle in L.A. He came up early so we could do this thing, and I show up, you know, not not uh, ready to roll. So I didn't have as much time with him as I was hoping. I think we got about an hour. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good interview. We talk fast. But... Um, then afterwards, he had invited me and, and friends to go into the Magic Castle, and he gave us a personal tour, including Duncan uh, Trussell. He came along and, and some other friends, and, uh, man, we saw some crazy stuff. But I think the greatest thing we saw that night was was Jamie doing a little private show for us. Um, he did some things I, I just – I still – you know, you see magic and you say, okay, I don't know how he did it, but yeah, there are, you know, probably mirrors and smoke and, you know, special box and, you know, whatever props and things. But then the things I saw Jamie do, he did right in front of us. And I can't even begin to think how it could be possible. You know, like I remember he had, um, 
uh, Duncan's friend was with us. So we know she's not working with Jamie, right? She, we know her. He put three coins in her hand and said, okay, now close your hand. She closed her hand. He didn't touch her. And then he like opened his hand and he had one of the coins in his hand. And he said, now open your hand. She opened her hand. There were only two coins in her hand. He said, no, close your hand again. She closed her hand. He closed his hand. He opened his hand. There were two coins. She opened her hand. Now there's only one coin. Now, he didn't touch her at any point at this. She just closed her hand and opened it again, and coins were appearing and disappearing. I have no clue how he did that. You know, I mean, you could say, well, they're trick coins, but what? Trick coins don't, like, dissolve in, not even into air. This in, in a closed hand and then reappear. I have no idea how he did it. So... He's good. This guy's the real deal. But before we get to Jamie, let me run through the little advertising thing I always do. Uh, This episode uh, is brought to you by Squarespace. Excellent uh, website design hosting service. If you sign up with Squarespace now and use tangent 10 as the code not only will they know that you listen to this podcast and maybe continue sponsoring it which would be cool but you get a 10 percent discount um if you're thinking of doing a website definitely check them out squarespace.com yeah they've got all these really slick templates you just put in your information it's really easy you don't have to be any kind of high-tech guru to to know how to do this stuff it's very self-explanatory and anything that you run into if you run into any trouble anywhere you just open up um what's it called like a, 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 a what do they call that you open a you know you 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 write to them you send them an email and you say hey i don't know how to do this and they're back at you within 24 hours open a ticket that's what it's called um and they're right back at you they're really responsive and very helpful um, you know, you can tell that they, when they set up the business, they knew that the major stumbling block would be people who say, yeah, I don't really know how to, I don't want to get involved in this. It's too technical, whatever. They really address that and they do a good job. So my website, if you want to check out one example, chrisryanphd.com, that's on Squarespace. Um, yeah. And it's like eight bucks a month is the, you know, the, for the basic plan. So it's very cheap. And then you get 10% off that you're looking at seven bucks a month. And, uh, if you sign up for the one year thing, you get, um, they throw in your, 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 your URL. So your web, you know, the web page, uh, you don't have to register it. They'll do that for you and include that. Now you can also go in uh, 14 days. They don't even ask you for a credit card or anything. So you've got two weeks to go in, play with it, see how it looks, and then you can just walk away if you want. But if you want to sign up at that point, Tangent 10 is the discount code. Okay, we're also uh, brought to you by... Who else? Oh, the T-shirts. Fair, um, uh, the Shore Design T-shirts, as always. The wonderful Shore Design T-shirts. Now, I can't say enough about Shore Design T-shirts because they're so cool. The T-shirts are so great. Uh, the owner of the company is a super nice guy. Um, but Duncan Trussell does Shore Design T-shirt 
commercials and his and his podcast and man i listened to him talking about you know these intergalactic force fields and all this crazy shit he talks about and and i just get intimidated i mean all i can say is they're great t-shirts i can't really get into the whole tie pubic hair blasting from other dimensions and i i just i can't do it i don't I don't know how Duncan gets goes into that space, but he just spews that crazy shit out, and it makes sense on some strange level. So uh, buy the T-shirts. They're great. SureDesignT-shirts.com. If you want uh, T-shirts, that the Sex of Dawn T-shirts, go to my page, ChrisRyanPhD.com, and you'll see the store there. Uh, we're shipping them all over the world now. Um, and by the way, the, the Squarespace, it's so easy. If you've got something to sell on your website, they've like, it's all set up. It's just, it's like click, drag, boom. There you go. Um, the shirts are designed by Levi Greenacre. So you can check out his site as well. He's a graphic designer. Very cool. Uh, we're soon, we're going to have tangentially speaking shirts and hoodies so that's coming soon they're not in yet but uh they should be in within a week or so of course as always the amazon affiliate link on my page on chris ryan phd go to tangentially speaking you can see all the back uh episodes of this podcast photos of the people show notes all that kind of stuff you can download the the podcast if you want to put it on a cd or do whatever people do with them uh, and you'll see a bonobo. Click on the bonobo balls. That takes you to Amazon. And then anything you buy at Amazon, we get a cut, 3%, I think it is. So that's a way of supporting the podcast without actually spending more money. Uh, and then what else? Carsey Blanton, thank you for the theme music. As always, you can contact me at tangentialpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to donate, there's a donate uh, button there. Uh, in fact, this week, Matthew Sturgis, thank you very much. Matthew dropped a significant amount of money in the bucket there. I really appreciate it. I don't know if that is in response to Duncan Trussell. <laughs> I, I, uh, I bought a mixer, okay? I, I got frustrated because I was doing an interview with two guys with, um, you might have heard it, the, the Young Turks guys. But I only had two mics, and so they were sharing a mic, and, and I thought, yeah, I should just get a mixer and learn to do the, you know, mixing and, you know, multiple interviews and all that. So I bought this really nice mixer, and then it sat in a box, and I never even learned to use it. And so, like, after three or four months, I just had to acknowledge that, okay, that was a stupid thing to do. I don't need this mixer, and I'm never going to learn to use it. So I sent it to Duncan because he mentioned that he needed a mixer. Um, anyway, Matthew's donation happens to be pretty much exactly what I spent for that mixer. So there you go. There's karma. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Duncan, for mentioning it, if that led to Matthew <laughs> Matthew's uh, donation. Uh, okay, very cool. I think I've done all the advertisements. I think we're all set. Come to Moab. Moab is great. I mean, don't come in midsummer. You'll burn your ass off. But it's pretty beautiful out here. And um, so let's go over to Jamie Ian Swiss. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, do you have uh, like a classic go-to sound check sequence? 
Uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth to this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Great. George Washington, my favorite orator. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a saw in Arkansas that could outsaw any saw you ever saw. If you saw a saw that could outsaw the saw that I saw in Arkansaw, I'd like to see the saw that you saw saw. Nicely done. Isn't that nice? Nicely yeah, done. not a fuck up. All right. Uh, this is the... <laughs> Your host is a fuck-up uh, edition, of tangentially speaking. Uh, I showed up here in the beautiful, what's this place called? Nirvana. The Nirvana. The Nirvana House, which is right across from the Magic Castle in Hollywood. I a, showed up here. A Hollywood landmark built in 1925 with a distinct oriental theme. I think it's politically incorrect to say oriental now. You have to it's say like Asian. A- <laughs> anyway, beautiful house. I show up here with my bag of tricks. I've got my mics and my cables, my mic stand. Bag of tricks. Get it? I'm a magician. Yeah. You get it? He slipped hey, that in, okay? Hey. That, that's why he is a pro. That's what makes me famous. Uh, and I didn't have my goddamn recorder with me. How is it possible that I spaced out? You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. That is how it's possible. So I'm here with Jamie Ian Swiss, one of the world's most renowned close-up magicians, a skeptic extraordinaire, uh, TV personality. You've been on a whole shitload of TV shows, which I... I'm not even going to get out my computer. Today's show, right Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 2020. Uh, yeah, 48 uh, Hours. You ever been on uh, Oprah? No, I have not. And then you're nobody. Yeah, you're well, fucking there, nobody. Well, uh, you and me both. Even, exactly. We have more in common than we thought. <laughs> even better than Oprah. Now, here, this is how you know you're a big fucking deal. When you've got a profile about your sorry ass in the New Yorker, uh, every like old rich Jewish lady in the Upper East Side knows your <laughs> name. It's amazing. <laughs> Dentist offices around the David world. David Remnick would love your description <laughs> of their demographic. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of. I read every New Yorker. Exactly. I, I really love the New Yorker. Yeah, I'm uh, a fanatical reader myself, and I never th- thought I would be in the pages of it, much less. Written by, since you bring it up, uh, written by uh, one of my favorite writers long before uh, I was ever in the magazine, which is uh, Adam Gopnik. Yeah, he's fantastic. And uh, he, He's the editor at this point? No, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, Remnick's editor-in-chief, but there are other editors, uh, uh, Hertzberg, Rick Hertzberg, and so on. But, um, uh, but Adam has been writing for the magazine for more than 20 years, and... Uh, He's, I think he's one of America's finest essayists. He's originally from Montreal. He's originally Canadian. But I, I think he's one yeah. of our finest essayists, Malcolm and I'm Gladwell a huge fan. Canadian too. Uh, and they are friends and colleagues, as a matter Fucking of fact. Canadians. Yeah, that's right. Taken over. And so many comedians are Canadian. And Canadians aren't very funny in general. Well, I, I don't think there would be a Saturday Night Live without um, Canada. Yeah. And I've read that that show used to be funny. <laughs> You're too young to remember. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll yeah. fill you in later. Okay. I'll fill you in later. So anyway, this is going to be a, a little bit of a rushed episode, not the. So we have to talk really fast. So yeah. get on with it. Exactly, and I'll slow it down in the editing process. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Right now, we're going to do it like the chipmunks. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, okay. So biker bars. <laughs> I read somewhere that you got you sort of cut your teeth in biker bars doing magic. What the hell is that? Like? Did you get your ass kicked? <laughs> well, as a clo- no, I never did get my ass kicked. Um, for the same reason that when you're uh, when you're a kid in school and you're the nerd and you get picked on by the bullies, and you learn 
to use your mouth. You learn to use your sense of humor, right? That's right. the only, you know, if that's if if that's what you are. I had all the growing up. I had all the uh, qualifications to achieve excellence in magic. I was basically a fat four-eyed kid with a speech impediment. Nice. So nice. of course I was I was bully food. Um, New York, yeah, yeah, in, Bro- in, in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Oh, Brooklyn. Right. Uh, she, I grew up in Sheepshead Bay, a small fishing village, right. uh, where the water is too thick to drink and too thin to plow. And the sheep's heads keep washing up on shore. That's it. Is named after a fish, yes. And um, so, uh, yeah. So when I uh, when I was first doing magic, close up magic, which actually was a third career, so I never I was into magic since I was seven years old, but I didn't do it. Unlike my friends who put themselves through high school and college doing kids shows i didn't want to perform for kids even when i was a kid and so i never did a paid show till i was 29 and i was uh uh the first regular gig i had was in brooklyn i used to go to this funky little bar in the neighborhood just a local gin mill and it had an illegal after hours bar upstairs which was basically an apartment where the windows were sealed over and it was decorated in like plastic potted plants and velour couches, uh, very 70s. And, um, you know, the uh, the office was pretty much a cash box and a gun. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, so I used to hang around there actually sometimes. And the guy who owned it, who was an ex-cop, a somewhat famous ex-cop, uh, Ex detective. Well, not exactly, but almost actually. Actually, and a guy they made a movie out of, but not as famous a movie. Uh, made a movie about, uh, and he hired me for one night a week to go around. He owned about six of these cheapy bars around Brooklyn, and I'd go around and do like a an hour at each at several of the bars, and then end up uh, late at night at the uh, after hours bar, and he'd you know give me a hundred dollar bill, and he had a he had a uh, an illegal. Uh, blackjack table in the after hours bar and I used to when it was quiet I would sit down with the dealers and I would demonstrate cheating methods <laughs> and uh, and it was great it was a really it was a you know it was a great little subculture to be part of and uh, until one night after quite some months of this and one night I, I came into the after hours club at the end of my night's work to get paid and uh and he calls me over. He goes, he goes, hey, kid. He says, come here. Yeah, what's up? He goes, uh, you know, you, you got you to stop. Uh, you, you can't sit at the blackjack table anymore. You, you, you're giving the customers the heebie-jeebies. So so we stopped that. And then I was in D.C. I lived in D.C. in the in the mid mid late 80s as a magic bartender at a and a performer at a big magic club there uh, uh, called the Inn of Magic. And um, somewhere during that period, uh, I guess when that club closed, um, I knew a guy who owned a, a biker bar. And so I ended up working at about three different biker bars. Uh, and you know, there I am doing my little, you know, close-up magic stuff, and uh, you know, it was always a little uh, nerve-wracking. This, you know, you didn't want to piss those guys off, but they were actually, to tell you the truth, they were great audiences. I actually had a lot of fun there. They were great audiences. It's just if the bottles and chairs started flying, you had to 
go to your neutral corner. You know, when we were, I should tell people that we've been chatting for a while because we had to rush to my parents' house to pick up the recorder. So if I refer to our earlier conversation, that was it in the mad dash to, to get the equipment. Um, but you mentioned... Um, we had to interrupt the, the, the orgy at his mom's house. Yeah. Get the recorder. <laughs> Don't talk about my mom. Uh, <laughs> You what did you mention? Now I now I've lost my train of thought. All right, fuck it. We'll get we'll get back to it. Uh, talk about my mom. Got issues, Chris. Talk about the guy writes an entire book about sex, but all you got to do is mention mom and sex in the same, and that's it. His mind is blown. Okay, there was sparks coming out of his ears. Now he's short circuited the entire conversation. I've ruined my ear my earphones my headphones. no, a friend of mine does magic. Oh, oh, I know what it was. You were talking. You were saying in the car. You're talking about the model. You're gonna fix this in post, right? Exactly. I'll fix it in post. You're talking about the a fashion model and uh, how she fucked with you, and it turned into this thing when you were doing that. And you were talking about how people have strange reactions to magic, True. right? How they can they feel they can feel threatened by it, and violated, or like you're you're trying to make them look stupid or stuff like that. Um, you know. So I wonder, like bikers who are like sort of define themselves with their threatening stance toward other people. You know, they're wearing the chains and they've got the Harleys and all that shit. Are they more or less likely to feel, to, to react that way? Most of the think? time they're great audiences. You know, a lot of guys in that culture are craftsmen, right? Electricians, right. carpenters, right. people like that. And and construction people and crafts people. In my, in my experience, crafts people immediately have respect for something like magic. They, right. They're not as self-conscious. One of the things they understand is they understand the idea of skill. The notion of having specialized skill does not intimidate a craftsman. So, you know, I could be at some cocktail party, some high-end, super-duper cocktail party, and now some nouveau riche lawyer is all bent out of shape because the guy with the deck of cards in his hands um, you know, just fool them and might be getting paid actually more than his right. than his corporate rate. You know, in fact, he's definitely getting paid more than his corporate rate. Um, and he can't. He, that kind of pisses him off. I don't mean the whole lot of them. I'm just saying yeah. you will find examples right. like this, okay? Right. Because you know, he went to school and he did all of his thing, and now he's being. He thinks he's being shown up and blah blah. Yeah. So he can't grasp all that. But but the notion of skill. To blue collar sometimes is a very easy way in, so you can't predict um, how people are going to react. And, I, and I'm not saying that you know ne- most people really enjoy magic, and, and there are a lot of people in the world who think they don't like magic, which is different than people who actually don't like magic. There's a few people who actually don't like magic. There's a lot of people who think they don't like magic. The people who think they don't like magic usually is because of some pri- previous victimization. You know, they've mm. they've they've you know been victimized by something called restaurant magic with you know some guy doing a uh trick with a you know where he pretends to pull a bra out of a woman's shirt or you know a produces a sponge rubber you know phallus at the end of his little ball trick i mean i mean people actually do this crap right and then they call it magic so it's misinformation right it's kind of it's what i call magic aversion therapy uh but then you show people the real thing, uh, uh, you know, a quality thing, uh, and, they, and they usually turn around pretty quick. But there are exceptions. And one of the interesting things about magic, people sometimes ask, you know, well, do you, don't you ever get tired of doing the same material for, uh, for people over and over again? And the thing about it is, and you can ask that question of any performing artist with a repertoire, but 
Um, the fact of the matter is, is that magic tends to render people psychologically transparent. And what's really most interesting about that is they are unaware of the process. So in other words, if someone is sitting in a movie theater and they're crying over the dramatic events in the theater, they've become, they've revealed themselves emotionally, but they are, if you ask them, they are aware of it. They know that they were showing this, right? Uh, magic is a little different. Gotcha. People react to magic in ways you can, I can learn a lot about a personality very quickly by the nature of their reaction to magic, but they're completely unaware that they're revealing that information. And so some people, uh, you know, if you work for really, I love working for really smart scientists, great, great minds. Yeah. Um, because they take magic as a kind of burlesque of their work. People have real confidence in understanding how the universe works. They, they just, they kind of spontaneously laugh at magic. It's like, I never forget the first time I performed for uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, who's, right. who's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to call a, a friend and yeah, colleague. You were chatting today. with him actually when I met you. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah, so there you yeah, go. Marty there you came go. Over, okay, interrupted great. your conversation. Sorry, to, yeah. sorry. Yeah, but Lou Reed told me never to drop names. So <laughs> I dropped sorry. it for you. But anyway, yeah. uh, so so. But the first time I met Richard, uh, it was we had dinner together with a few people, and and I was someone asked me to perform some magic for him, and I did. And about you know two things in, he he suddenly said. It looks bloody supernatural. And I'm like, consider the source, right? Okay, the world's greatest rational, skeptic, God. atheist, right? He goes, it looks bloody supernatural. And I immediately said, can I quote you? And he said, no. And uh, But we've since become friends. And when I repeated the story to him, well, exactly, because when I repeated the story to him a couple of years ago, he said, oh, no, you could quote me. That's a great story. So um, so the point is, someone like that, who's who's their their intellectual identity is not threatened by the fact they've been they may be surprised by it by that experience but not necessarily threatened by it whereas there are people in the world who feel the compulsion to stake their intellectual credentials on the foundation of my little card trick which is kind of ridiculous and and when and (laughs) if you think about it and i and i you know first of all because we know that the information is knowable right it is knowable you can go to the library or something and so that's one thing but another thing is i always wonder if that person who really gets obsessive about it and really obnoxious about it and will just come up with any explanation so they don't you know i've twice you know i've had people say i know how you did it it's an electromagnet in the ceiling and and i've had that explanation (laughs) twice in my career not once twice and um but I often wonder, does that person put half that amount of effort, a fraction of this amount of effort, in deciding on their health care, for example, or, right. or, or whether they're going to buy homeopathy or not in the drugstore? You, yeah, you know, it's, so it's what I call inappropriate rationality, yeah. right? <laughs> they're well, targeting, they're pointing their rationality in the wrong direct, the wrong exactly, target. Exactly, exactly. Mis, Misapplication mis, uh, of resources. Exactly. I, I've got a buddy named Voodoo who is... Um, you know the best uh, m- magician that I've been friends with. All right, let's say he's not—he's not professional. I told him I was interviewing you. I said, "Oh, I'm going to interview Jamie in Swiss." Was, you know, he's also and Voodoo was like, "Do not use my name in the same sentence with him." Like we—I'm a guy who does <laughs> tricks at parties. He's a pro, right? So, but anyway, Voodoo said Voodoo has done the same trick. F- he does you know twenty thirty tricks, and he's done the same tricks for me. He won't show me how he does them. But he'll do the same thing five times in a row and give me every opportunity to figure it out. I can't. And one time he said to me, look, 
Don't worry about it. The easiest people to fool are the smartest ones. Well, that, and that that's true? a counterintuitive notion that any experienced magician will tell you. Really? That, yes, okay. because we're using the fundamental ways that the human brain is wired to work. We're using that against you. He we says have kids a, are the worst because they'll look at the wrong thing that and is, you can't like, the, direct their attention. Well, they're, they're looking, when he says they're looking at the wrong thing, they're looking at the real thing <laughs> exactly. because they have not developed those habits of right. assumption yet. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, the fact that we make quick assumptions about our world based on our past experience, that's a distinctly human trait. And it is a survival skill. It's an incredibly valuable trait, right? Every, you, you know, we don't turn around and pick up each chair and examine it to make sure it's not a fake chair made out of styrofoam that's going to collapse, right? right. Uh, we don't step off the curb each time and wonder if the street is just modeled to look like something, but in fact it's you know m- mud that we're going to slip into or something, yeah. you know, whatever it is. Yeah. So we make assumptions based on our experience, and that's, that's a, a survival skill. But magicians can take those assumptions and those quick jumps, leaps of uh, cause and effect that humans are wired to do. This is very valuable on the African plane, you know, when you're hunting and you got to figure out what's dangerous and what's not and yeah. you got to make quick decisions, survival decisions, right? So, but And we can turn that upside down. So the child doesn't necessarily have that experience yet it's looking at things one by one did the coin really go in the hand well it didn't right but all the little cues i'm giving you an adult that indicate it went in the hand the the child doesn't assume now what about have you ever done magic for mentally ill people I wonder what schizophrenics make of magic. I no, I couldn't uh, particularly. No, I have no, I have no real clinic. So many jokes, a little time. I mean, I just no. My, my, my wife's a psychiatrist, no. right? And uh-huh. she, she has worked with um, with serious um, psychotics. For that's her specialization. So people, these are the people who and might you, you not. Met, you met in the couch, or yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we've met on a few couches. Um, but, uh, you know, I, when you were describing, you were saying, you know, you don't pick up a chair to check if it's a real right. chair. You don't look at the street and think. And I was thinking, well, some of her patients probably do. Her patients are delusional. Right. So they're never sure what's real and what isn't real. So I wonder how they deal with illusion. You know, it, it, there might be something interesting there. Uh, maybe, you know, I, 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 I suspect that that conf- that. that- confusion about what's real and what's not real is different than the kind of real not real that magicians are dealing with i suspect as opposed to dealing with children for example you know you can't at a certain age you have to wait till a child has an idea of what reality is before you can do magic for them right because you know at three everything is magical yeah right magic's just real um i uh when my boys i have twin boys who are now 10 and when they were about, I'm trying to think, when did this happen? I think they were about five. And we were playing, um, we were playing hide and go seek. And I convinced them that I had disappeared. They became completely convinced. They thought I was real magic still at that time. And this is what convinced them that I was real magic because they were absolutely convinced that I had disappeared. They searched every single corner of the house for a very long period of time. And because they had each other to do it, they didn't get scared. They were just kind of wondrous. And also because they knew I was magic. So they weren't frightened, but they were really seriously hardcore mystified. And partly it was because I was changing locations. And um, 
And then I magically appeared right among them in a place, in like a central hallway, in a place where they had just looked everywhere. It wasn't near anything else. And for the next two years, they talked about how that had proven that I was magic. So magic is no fun to do for young children, really young children who can't tell the difference. Just the way I have no interest. You know, it's no fun to do magic for like new agers either. You know, if you can't tell the difference, you know, like I, I mean, what's the point of doing magic for Shirley MacLaine? If you can't tell the difference between illusion and, and reality, you know, what, there's no point in doing magic. That's funny. <laughs> All right. That's good. All right. So now being a magician, uh, you mentioned the blackjack tables and all this kind of stuff. Do you ever find yourself, I mean, you you probably do often in terms of uh, ideas and religion and things like that that you see as obvious tricks that are, you know, being presented as reality. But, like, if you're ever at a casino and you see someone cheating, palming cards, playing games that you detect and others wouldn't? Um, well, I can't say that I've, that live I've spotted that in a casino per se i've seen a lot of mistakes in casinos by dealers and things like that that i see all the time what, what kind but, of mistake what do you mean? well mistakes in procedure the thing that that holds the number one weapon against secu- uh, for security against cheating that a casino has i mean you have the eye in the sky obviously and i and i have a lot of friends in that world and i've i've spent time in eyes in the sky and i've seen a lot of eye in the sky video footage a lot what is eye in the sky that's the, that's the, the video the, camera the that's the security okay. cameras in the ceiling and um so they have that but the thing that goes hand and has to go hand in hand with that is the training the staff designing procedure and training the staff to follow that procedure exactly so for example you've seen uh when a blackjack dealer changes up with another dealer right Mm -hmm. that when the the last thing the dealer does when he gets up to leave Mm -hmm. the table is he claps his hands like and he shows his hands like this that's for the camera that's not really for the players that's Ah, for the camera so because they're recording that on video Ah, so they so now if the count's not right at the end of the night i mean this is a very basic and simple thing uh, they 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 know at that moment he didn't have anything in his hands. He didn't cop a chip as he was leaving, or something like this, or a card, which is a very useful thing um, for the dealer to steal. Yeah, well, most I mean, uh, most cheating that occurs in casinos is by players trying to cheat the casino. But right. there, but there are countless cases over the years. The most powerful way to cheat a casino is if you can collude. Inside with that, yeah. a dealer right and if you can collude with a dealer now this doesn't happen that often these days but if you can collude with a dealer and a pit boss right. which is the next level up right you can beat the hell out of the camera i mean you can really beat the hell out of the eye in the sky you can get away with a lot a lot of things that the eye'll never right. catch right. um so uh so i mean i've seen and i've seen endless hours of of actual cheating in casinos most of which is nowhere near what you would imagine it to be. You know, you know, we have this idea about the charming cheat and all the skill of the con man and all this nonsense. You know, criminals are criminals, and one of the things that criminals have in common is most of them are not very bright. Because um, if they were, they wouldn't be criminals. Um, you know, every idiot who robs a bank thinks he's not going to get caught. So uh, most of what I've seen on the eye in the sky over the years, the overwhelming percentage of it is really ham-fisted. And the main skill... If you want to call it a skill, the main trait 
that these guys have is the willingness to take these insane risks with very little skill. It's the boldness right. uh, that does it. But on occasion, you, you do see something extraordinary. Really? And I have seen things that are extraordinary. But, you know, for example, one of the, be- one of the most skilled scams I ever saw at a blackjack table, which was two guys actually working in together as partners at the same table. It was actually a four-person scam, but it was two guys doing the heavy work. And uh, they got caught because they were greedy as, and as incredibly skillful as they were, some of the best I'd ever seen. You know, they sat and worked the same table for 40 minutes until finally somebody, the dealer didn't notice because the dealers don't know about these things. The, right. the, the house doesn't want dealers to know anything about cheating. It's a weird kind of psychology. Ah, right. they're, they're too paranoid. The, the, the casinos are very super, incredibly superstitious. For a business that's dependent entirely on math, really? you wouldn't believe how superstitious the culture is. Really? Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I mean, I, mean, I mean, pit bosses will come up. They'll, 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 if, a, if a dealer is, if a, is lo- if the house is losing for a long time at a table, you know, they'll come up and sweat the dealer. The, the, the pit boss will come up and sweat the dealer, like give him a hard time. I mean, it's numbers, right? Knowing it's there's dopey, no way. It's, it's a dopey it's, thing, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyway, be that as it may, um, it was just the pure greed and the repetition that these guys got caught. So, I mean, You'd think they'd be smart enough not to this, do that. Yeah, I but mean, if they were really smart enough not to do that, they'd be doing something else. So, so were these guys like sleight-of-hand artists? Is, was it a sleight-of-hand? Well, hand yeah, it was guy? a sleight-of-hand maneuver, and it was, uh, yeah, so guys they, switching, basically two guys switching cards between two hands so that one hand becomes the strongest hand. Uh, and when you're playing two hands to make one, you, you, you got an advantage. You, you're going to get 20 or 21 most of the time yeah. at the blackjack table. Wow. Um, but, uh, but the tape included them being taken down. You know, yeah. the security guys <laughs> taking him down. So, you know that kind of thing. That that kind of thing happens. So, so I mean, I mean, I'm interested in that um, as a as a phenomenon. When I was 10 years old, I'd already been doing magic for three years, and my father said to me, he said, "You realize you can never play cards for money now, right?" And I said, "Well, why not? What do you mean?" He said, "Well, because if you win, there's always going to be someone yeah. to suspect you of cheating, and if you lose, people will just think you're incompetent." And so I'm I'm quite knowledgeable about cheating and I've worked a little bit in the security field I've consulted with game uh, manufacturers and I've worked in a trade show for in trade shows for gaming companies um, and so on and I have a lot of friends in the security world too but I spent you know I never sit down and play at Greenfelt because it's it's not that they wouldn't take my money I mean I wish I had a buck for every magician who said you know I'm banned from Vegas Mm. yeah bullshit (laughs) Um, they'll they'll take my money but it doesn't mean they wouldn't be looking pretty quickly if if, if I was winning yeah Um, they know your face not yet I bet they have face recognition software oh today they do oh no they've had face facial I did I produced a special for the Discovery Channel called Cracking the Con Game around let me see what year was that around 2000 I'm gonna say and we shot in an off strip brand new off strip casino that had just installed the very latest technology in their eye in the sky and they had the first generation facial technician uh, facial recognition Recognition, software so that the camera could track you and you could be wearing we did it with me we, we had them you know take images of me and then they had me walking through the casino with a you know phony glasses and a mustache and a hat and whatever totally nailed me because they're using well because they're using things that you can't change which is 
things like the distance between your eyes and your nose and your ah, mouth and that these right. kind of static measurement. Right. So it's not affected by all the stuff you put on top of it. Wow. Yeah, and I'm sure that um, and all I mean I know for a fact that all that technology has gotten better yeah. and better. You know, with with magic, one of the things that I've always thought about is like there's a big difference between sitting at a table with somebody who's doing it right in front of you and the stuff you see on TV. Because uh-huh. on TV, who knows? It could all be that's bullshit, right. Right. That's right. So when I I've owned this is one area of magic I've only seen performed on TV, which is the guys you know who stands there and he's talking to you and whatever and next thing you know he's got your watch on and he's taking your belt off and all that oh well is well, that real pickpocketing there's a difference first of all between i have to i have to say as a caveat there's a difference between what the professional pickpocket does and what the stage pickpocket does and they have very little in common to tell you the truth and again just as we we're talking about criminals before um, if they were smart, they'd actually have a, you know some other line of work. Right. Uh, pickpocketing, real criminal pickpocketing, is a pretty crude bunch. Um, they have certain techniques that they use. There are psychological techniques. There are skill techniques. Um, I, there was a thing that was going on in New York about a decade ago for a while where you'd have a pair of dips, uh, pickpockets, um, and they were working the subways. And so what would happen is, let's say they're on the platform. And the, and the train stops. And the door opens. And it, somebody's trying to get off. Guy's trying to get off off the car. And these guys are kind of in the way. Yeah. And one guy says to his friend, he goes, get out of the way, man. Let the man off the train first. Don't be pushing your way in. Let, let the man off. Go ahead, sir. I'm very sorry. And while the guy is doing this whole speech to the guy who's surprised coming off the car and touching him doing this, right, which is a big part of, of, of the deception of pickpocketing, which has to do with tactile overload, basically. The other guy pickpockets him. And then they get on the car, and then the door's closed, and the train's gone, and the guy's left on the platform with an empty pocket. Then they get to the next tra- station... The doors open and a guy is getting on the train and they do the exact same routine and they clean him out getting off the train, doors closed, guys on the train, they're on the platform. That happens. So there are there are, there is psychology and, and skill and a certain kind of skill. But if but just like with magic, the comparison to the performer, the it, it's it is a world of difference because you know the three card. It's like saying the three card money operator is a great side of hand artist. He's not. He does one trick. Right. I do hundreds. Right. You know he does one slight. I do hundreds. But the guys so, who do that shit where they take the belt off. Yes. Yeah, so right. And my friend Apollo Robbins, who was profiled in the New Yorker uh, just recently, um, who's one of the best theatrical pickpockets around right now, uh, and uh, yeah, he he uh, he'll. He'll just em- he'll empty you out, and you'll never you'll never know what hit you. No, he but but he is a skilled magician, sleight of hand magician, yeah. as well as pickpocket, and he uses he combines those techniques as yeah. stage pickpockets always always have. You know, you're talking about that train technique. Uh, I was in Barcelona, uh-huh. and I've lived in Barcelona for 22 years right. or so. And the reason I live in Barcelona is because the food is so damn good. Nope. 
the reason I live in Barcelona is I got robbed there in 1989. And you were trying to find the guy ever since. You're Batman, <laughs> trying to trying to trying to get even oh, with, for what happened gonna... to your parents. Uh, no, I got robbed, and while I was waiting for a new passport, uh, somebody offered me a job, and I started meeting women. And it was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll hang out for a while. Ah, so you, that's great. So yeah. that was the best thing that ever happened right. to him. See, so, everything happens for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyway, Barcelona, I don't know if you've been there, but it's... Uh, Many, yes, yeah, I love Barcelona. It's a lot of people get robbed there. It's a big pickpocketing capital. So uh, after that experience and living there for a while, I was no longer the idiotic American with my <laughs> wallet in my back pocket. I adapted, right? right? But I grew up in New York, so... Uh, well, yeah, but even, I mean, for me, yeah, I lived in New York for a while, but in Europe and Morocco and, you know, they're... Sure, sure. Pickpocketing Naples. Scenes, like, New York, you're more likely to get shot. You know, but pickpocketing That's, seems to be a European thing. Yeah, no, no, I don't know. Anyway, no. anyway, back to the story. No. So the story is, um, you know, I looked like a tourist, but I was actually, I a am local, a local, right? Ah, right? uh, yes. So Cassie and I were coming back from Sevilla, and we were in this big train station called uh, Sanz, Estación Sanz, and we were getting on the train. Exactly that thing was happening. They, these guys were in the way, and da, 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 and I knew they were pickpockets. I saw them, and I said, in Spanish, I said, yeah, yeah, back off. I know what you're doing, right? And he's like, what do you mean? I said, you're a thief. Get away from me. Yeah, fuck you. Hey, fuck you. Yeah, 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 fuck you. Okay. And meanwhile, I touch my... I'm wearing like uh, military pants with side oh, pockets. Oh, and, I, and my fucking wallet's gone. Got- and I mean, they got me while I was saying, you're not going to get yeah. me, right? Yeah. So I jumped off the train before the doors closed. And I, I, the dudes were going up the escalator at this point. There were two right. or three of them. They were Romanian, I think. And I come, I come up behind them. And I'm like, give me my wallet back, you know, in Spanish. I said, I'm not a fucking tourist. I know I look like a tourist. And I got a suitcase and shit, but I'm not a tourist. I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. So I just, I said, all right. So I just followed. They split up, of course. And right. I picked the one guy that I had been with. I just followed him through the train station for 15 minutes, screaming, police, police, he's a thief, police, right. police, he's a thief. And the guy's like, get the fuck away from me, you know. And I, no, I'm not going to. Give me my wallet. Oh, police, police. So finally, they came back together, the three of them. And there are right. no police anywhere. Right. Welcome to Spain. And, and they talked in Romanian. And finally, they're like, all right, your wallet's down there, man. And I was like, no, no, you go get it. You give it to me. Like, ah, oh, fuck, yeah. So they go and they, get, and they gave me back my wallet with all the money in it. Everything. So basically, what you're saying is, is that the difference really is not that there's not pickpockets in New York, but that the pickpockets in Spain are just fucking wussies. <laughs> because any self-respecting pickpocket in New York would just clock your ass yeah. and not let you f- chase them around for 15 minutes. Jeez, I would have smacked you by then. All right. Yeah, exactly. But you know why? It's unbelievable. That's like, that's an insane story. Well, the reason is the law. The law is oh. if... You are picked up for stealing less than I think five hundred euros. Right. You go in, they you, you know, of it's course you don't formality. have any ID, and right. they let you go, right? <laughs> and they give you a court date, which you're not going to show up for. If you punch someone, that's a whole different thing, uh-uh. <laughs> right? So they were like, they're not wow. going to get violent, and wow. finally, it was well, just like I don't recommend you, you try that technique in New York, uh, right. Chris. No. Okay, I, no. I don't recommend that at all. Although now that it's worked, I mean, the problem is. Something I had like it, you know, I had it happen in Mexico. I was in Tijuana many years ago uh-huh. with some magicians. We had done a gig in San Diego, <laughs> and we drove. It's a great opening story, by the way. <laughs> and we drove over the border uh, 
into Tijuana, and you know, and we went to some funky strip club bar, just just the word, you know, just as one does, yeah, as one does. And uh, I'm sitting there watching a show, and a waiter brings us drinks, and I pay the guy, and now he gives a drink to the guy next to me, who was a young magician that I had brought in for this gig from Florida, actually. And out of the corner of my eye, I wasn't watching closely, but out of the corner of my eye, because he gives a guy a 20, and I see the waiter count the change back and hand it to him and stuff it in, and like fold it and stuff it into his hand and turn around. And I immediately turned to my friend. It was really just peripheral, but I, the action didn't seem right to me. And I right. turned to him. I said, did you check your change? He could, and he was already he put it in his pocket. I said, did you check your change? So he checks. And sure enough, the guy had, had basically stolen, palmed off the 10. Mm-hmm. So... I walk, I go to the bar immediately, and I go, where's that waiter? And now they're all giving me the no speak of the English routine, right? And I'm like, just get me that fucking waiter now. And now, you know, there's all this conversation, and now the guy comes out, and I'm like, give me the 10 bucks back. And again, there's the little bull, you know, bullshit denial. And I said, dude... Really, don't waste my time, okay? Just yeah. just give it to me, and that'll be the end of it. And sure enough, I got my 10 bucks back in a Tijuana bar. <laughs> my friend was amazed. It's the New Yorker in me, you know? And my, this, the kid was amazed. He was absolutely amazed. But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, I was a slight of hand. So what, what other careers does... Oh, okay, let, before I get into that, sleight of hand, is it purely learned skill or people are born with... I don't believe in gifts. I don't believe in gifts. Really? I, I, yeah, I don't believe in gifts at all. If you know, it's it's. I work too hard to talk about gifts. I think any artist works too hard to talk about gifts. I think any professional athlete works too hard to talk about gifts. Does someone is someone born with a little propensity in some particular area that might be okay? You know, when I was a kid. I, the only thing I could do with a ball was make it disappear. I had no, <laughs> I had no gross motor skills. You not know, up I had your none. Ass, I mean, I, I, yeah, assuming. No. <laughs> Where did that come Sorry, from? I don't. Jeez. Yeah, you talked about my mother so, in an orgy. Well, you know what? It's know. all on the table here, <laughs> See, motherfucker. Uh, so <laughs> this ain't CNN. <laughs> um, so you know, did I have? I I played guitar from an early. You know, childhood also. I was a musician. So, so I think maybe I had fine motor coordination. Right. Not not large motor coordination. No, you know, running and catching. Forget it. Right. I had fine motor coordination. But that by itself, you know, means nothing. It just means nothing. You could have been you a know, surgeon. Because let's talk about talent. Or it could have just been nothing. I mean, right. talent is just another word for potential. Right. Right, and the thing about becoming a professional at anything, or becoming an, an expert, or mastering a skill, or becoming an artist, or whatever, is is all the hard work. And right. I and and most people, when they talk about, oh, it's great to have a gift, it's because they're comforting themselves that yeah. they did not work hard enough to make to to achieve some that that thing. Right? I'm not trying to sound snobbish about it at all. I respect skill in all things. You well, know? it's actually the opposite um, of snobbish, is what you're saying. Uh, right? Because I think we all work. I think it's we all we all have it. You know, I. I I love baseball. I'm a big baseball fan. I could never play it, but I was a big baseball. I'm a big, huge baseball fan. And I think that there's when I see a, a fielder make a great play, I have this intuitive thing 
there's a kind of heroism in it that I identify with. Same way the hero in the movie, you identify with him. Hopefully, you know, if it's if the story is told properly, it's someone you identify with. Um, uh, you know, you you identify with Willis and Die Hard because he's an ordinary. He's set up as an ordinary guy. Mm. Now, when he saves the world, it's like you you're saving the world. And I think when Derek Jeter makes that great play, that great turnaround jump play, uh, throw to first from deep in the hole. There's a part of me that intuitively goes there, but for the grace of a slight difference in genetic endowment and some differences in environmental upbringing, go I. I mean, we're we are we are indistinguishable mm. on the anatomy, ta- you know, on the on the on the on the postmortem table. We are mm. indistinguishable as members of our species. Mm. It's only these very small differences between right. us. We have everything in common, right. and I and I and I think that's the case. I don't really I don't really believe in in gifts. At all, I, I, I'll also say, as, a, as maybe what might seem like an odd turn on that, that also that same point of view is what fuels my interest in serial killers and that kind of abnormal psychology, because the psychopath is much, much more like you and I than he is different. He's almost indistinguishably different. Maybe there's something in brain science now that's going to let us distinguish him or her uh, now, but. Um, you you know, read the psychopath test. One, one, I, yeah, I know about the psychopath test. And there's, you know, one to two percent of the population is a sociopath, and that means we've each probably met one or two in our lives. One probably out of hundred. Probably worked for them, <laughs> or voted perhaps. for them. And it's only one or two percent of those that become violent criminals. So most of them are high function. Some of them very successful actually yeah. in the business. Um, but but to me, you know, the the Ted Bundys of the world. The fact of the matter is, you know, we create these uh, kind of super villains in movies. Hannibal Lecter is so brilliant and so monstrous because it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel that we could identify the killer among us Mm. because he stands out and he's extraordinary. Uh, And that makes you feel safe. See, Hannibal Lecter is scary in a very safe, fun way, whereas the banality of evil is what's actually terrifying. The Mark David Chapmans of the world, the, the David Berkowitzes of the world, the utter banality of some schmo who works at the post office, buys a gun and starts killing people, and you can't pick him out of a crowd because he's just a schmuck. Yeah. And that's what's truly terrifying. But the difference between him and us is it's, it's such a small thing. It's really a, a very small... We have much more in common. It's monstrous. But we have we are much more alike. But you could say we are different. All right, here's an argument. I, I made I wrote a, an article or a chapter in a book called The Psychology of Dexter. Uh-huh. You know yeah, the TV the series, show Dexter. Yeah. And the argument, I, I, the chapter is called Being Dexter Morgan. And the idea is Dexter rep, Dexter's a superhero. Dexter's Superman, Spider Man, whatever. All of them are born to normal human parents, but some weird shit happens to them that makes them different. And their parents try to train them to, like, focus their superpower in a way that's going to help people rather than hurt people. Right. Right? And that's exactly what Dexter's father did. I don't know how much, if you've seen the show. No. Oh, okay. Well, Dexter's like the psychopath with the heart of gold. He only kills bad people. Right. Right? And his dad was a cop. And his dad was like, oh, this kid's fucked up. He's going to kill people because he was adopted. His mother had been murdered, and he sat in blood for three days. It's this whole horrible thing. So It's a story about people, damn it. 
it's a story about American foreign policy. <laughs> it's a story about drone warfare. It's a uh-huh. story about Guantanamo. Right, right, it's a story right. about yes. a prison industrial right. complex. It's about in, the you monstrosity know, of killing for good cause. Industrial meat production. Exactly. We right. all engage in it. We all fucking do it. We're all heartless fucking killers, right? It's just that most of us institutionalize it, pay someone else to do it, and don't fucking think about it. Right. But we're still doing it. We're participating. We're just, you know, I hate to, you know, bring in the Nazis, but we're, you know, we're all participants in okay, a really Okay, but there's, there's, a, there's a certain amount of disingenuity in, in the, the, the broad generalization. The fact that people do, yes, take part in supporting factory farming and the monstrosity of it, they are also doing that by denying and isolating themselves from what's really involved. Right. The, the true sociopath. He gets right in there. He's right in there. And he has, and he has no remorse. So is the sociopath like the hunter? And that's what makes him different than us. Who kills and eats his own food? And the rest of us are the guys who go to the grocery well, I, store? Well, no, I would, I would uh, uh, I, if anything, it might be the other way around because I would say that the, the hunter, even though I've been an ethical pescatarian for 35 years um i i I don't have much problem with with hunting and fishing if you're actually getting your wild game right i don't really have a much issue with that my issue is not with uh, i i don't have a flat philosophical objection to the notion of eating of consuming other animals no no what i what i have an objection to is systematically torturing other animals for pleasure for the pleasure of the taste of, of something I don't need. Right, and, so, and they never have a fucking life to so, begin with. So I don't yeah. think so I think that the I think that the serial killer is really very much the opposite of the ethical hunter um, who, yeah. who who hunts to eat. Well, the parallel the serial killer trying. is the the serial killer is first of all among other things is is most most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time is a is a paraphiliac. He's, he's, there's usually a sexual component to what he's doing. It's the thing they rarely want to talk about. Even Bundy, who's the most interviewed, there's more pages of, of interviews with Bundy talking about his life and career and everything else. But the one thing he never wanted to talk about was the fact that at, he got off with dead bodies, with pieces of dead bodies. I mean, really? and yeah, mo- many of them do. That's a very common thing. And that's the interesting thing. Now that gets you into the whole interesting subject of paraphilia and why it's very hard to cure someone of any particular form of it, whether it's child yeah. molestation or whatever, because everybody has to get off, right? It's always that's, a, that's a thing, but it's just, if you, and if you happen to be unfortunate enough to get wired in a way yep. that's, that's, hurting someone yeah you're you're in trouble because and everybody yeah. and so are your victims because it's it's really hard to unwire it yeah right well a friend of mine is just this week i believe publishing a book called perv about perversions jesse Baring is his name well uh, i'm curious of, as i'm sure you would be as well about about how that term is defined because there's a lot of things in this in, i'm not when i talk about paraphilia i'm talking about a person who can't get off yeah. unless you know, it's with a part of a dead body or with an underage child or, or something hurting, like this yeah, yeah. and hurting and hurting someone. Otherwise, there's a lot of crap in this culture that gets identified as as so-called perversion yeah. or kink or whatever. Right. And the fact of the matter is, you know, I mean, I always even wonder why people in the kink community and I and I know plenty uh, of them even use the term in a way, because really 
if you're if if you're into sort of you know what do you want to call it non-traditional sexual practice let's call it that right it doesn't feel like kink right it feels normal it feels it's it feels normal and it probably actually is normal that's the thing i mean we use this word like you know the term foot fetish right Right. and yet if you read how common that interest in that is across cultures cross gender Right, it's ludicrous to even call it a. It, it renders the term fetish meaningless. Yeah. yeah, you're right. So it's not kink, and it's not fetish, and it's not perverted. Right, right? some things are, yeah. and just like everything else, if you broaden the term too much, you completely uh, uh, dilute the power of the word. The power that just as in, if you overuse the word, overextend the use of the word rape. Right, as mm-hmm. part of a political agenda, you actually diminish the horror of that crime for what it really means. Right. Yeah. I hear you. Well, if it's any uh, consolation, Jesse is uh, a very open-minded, uh, tolerant, cool guy uh-huh. who also happens to be homosexual. And uh-huh. So his definition... Oh, but that, that's, fucking, that's fucking weird. Yeah, I know. It's weird. I mean, it's, who, that's, who sucks? Talk about perv. I, just can't I mean, how's that? How do, what is it? It's like that, that interview with the guy who wrote the book about Jesus, the Fox interview oh, yeah. that went around, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, yeah. it's like, it's yeah. like how, you know, how can a homos- what's a, what, what, what's a homosexual, what's the business of homosexual have writing a book about perversions? Isn't that just wrong? <laughs> Isn't that just wrong? Why would you do that? <laughs> Yeah, Fox. There's a home of perversion. Yeah. Although, although now I read that he is actually, he kept talking about his PhD, which which was the one thing in that interview I found kind yeah, of annoying. It was a little and you use it in your Twitter handle, so maybe you can explain it to me. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but but, um, but it turns out he talked about you know I'm an expert in comparative religion and history of religion. Blah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But I read somewhere his foot is in uh, so is in. Um, uh, is sociology. His so he, undergraduate degree? He, oh, his PhD, his doctorate. So uh, he's in sociology. So he may have been misrepresenting himself in the interview. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I did find that a little unfortunate. It was odd to keep that he was like back, appealing like to authority. To go back yeah. to that, right? But, yes, appeal to authority. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, but I think his it's point not really. It's kind of off the point. Of right. Even I mean, what, he he even lost the opportunity. To, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To make a, a better point. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, the the PhD thing in my Twitter handle. I sort of regret that because you're not the first person to point that out, and it's also my web page. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to point it out until you know we were recording. <laughs> <laughs> Caught me off guard, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. The the reason I mean, I tried. I, I know nothing. I mean, I knew nothing about Twitter. My editor was like, "You got to do Twitter. It's the thing." And I I just hate the even name Twitter. It just sounds so fucking dumb. It's like tweets, really. Like, do I have to get a poster of kitties on my wall too? And you okay? But you posted this tweet th- that you were interviewing me. No, so, I know. I mean, now I mean, I'm now tweeted, I'm into oh, so it now up you're to with my it. Oh, you were neck. saying this yeah. is how you felt this at, is at the, the time. Beginning. Okay, great. So I I put my name in, and of course Chris Ryan's taken, Christopher Ryan's taken, Christopher Patrick Ryan's taken. It's all taken, and it's like, uh, how about? Yeah, but I'm the only one with a PhD. Let's try that. Did and you try? Put, did you try, Mister Christopher? Ryan? I did not, because Mister just seems. I don't know. Or master. Remember how they call you master yeah, when you're a when kid? You're, yeah, when you're That'll underage. That'll get you into some S&M down the road. You know? like, <laughs> <laughs> so why is it that you wear black and whip people? Well, 
They called me master. master. It all I began. Eight. Start, started out as a child. <laughs> exactly. If it's any consolation to you, my PhD is from a third-rate university. <laughs> I, I feel got better it already. And, yeah. <laughs> 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 Should be Chris Ryan fake PhD <laughs> degree mill. Oh shit! Um, all right, we're running low on time here. We got about what seven twenty. We got ten minutes till we're supposed to be meeting yes. a, a posse of luminaries. Um, last question: As I, I could talk to you all night, obviously we're just getting warmed up, but. Um, you were talking in the car. We, I thought you made some really interesting observations about the about religion as magical thinking and and the fear of mortality mm-hmm. and the awareness of mortality. You want to talk about that? Explore. That well, I, I'm an ath- you're, you're an atheist, a devout atheist. Well, I don't know about devout. I'm I'm an atheist, but um, I'm all, more importantly, I'm a skeptical activist, uh, and so I'm an advocate of the scientific method and of critical thinking and of rational inquiry as a way to think about the world, as a way to solve the world's problems, as a way to protect people as a consumer advocate, uh, if you will, from pseudoscience. Uh, and I, and I, I wrap up all of those interests, those many interests in my work for a number of organizations, a couple of regional organizations in the country that I helped found, the National Capital Area Skeptics, in uh, the Washington D.C. area, national what? National Capital Area Skeptics, oh, NCAS, the, the Brazilian N- martial arts, NCAS dot org uh, in the D.C. area, the New York City Skeptics, uh, NYCSkeptics.org. and uh, particularly, uh, I'm a senior fellow for the James Randi Educational Foundation, which can be found at randi r a n d i dot org, for which I blog pretty much every Wednesday, and I also make video commentaries called The Honest Liar that can be found on YouTube. Uh, and as part of my duties with the Randi Foundation, I also help administer the Million Dollar Challenge, which is we offer a million dollar prize for anyone who can demonstrate a paranormal ability under mutually agreed upon test conditions. And we also host the world's largest skeptic and critical thinking conference called the Amazing Meeting, better known as TAM, every July in Las Vegas, over a thousand attendees every year. Um, And so I'm very interested in critical thinking on the one hand and irrational thinking on the other hand and what causes that. Uh, And one of the things that causes that phenomenon of magical thinking is the fact that we are wired as humans. We evolved to think about cause and effect, as we mentioned before, make quick snap judgments about cause and effect. And we are pattern-seeking animals. We look to find patterns mm-hmm. in the universe. And again, that's a fabulous survival skill, but it can also go awry. It goes awry when we see the face of Jesus on a piece of toast or the face of Ted Kennedy on Mars. It goes awry when magicians use it against us for to create entertaining and beautiful illusions. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an atheist activist. I think atheism is something that often comes out of critical thinking and rational inquiry and a scientific worldview. But what I'm really interested in as a skeptic is teaching people better ways to think and how to think about evidence and how to think about testable claims in terms of coming to conclusions about how the world works and being able to tell the difference between truth and nonsense when it comes to things that can be tested and are not faith-based claims. Um, And I think, you know, I have a kind of a pet theory about religion that, uh, you know, first of all, if you want to talk about magical thinking, um, 
you, 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 it's the, the scientific method is not a, an easy way or an intuitive way for people to, to think. There's a wonderful book from the early 90s called The Uncommon Sense. Um, and uh, he talks about the fact that you know, the Greeks touch upon the scientific method 2,000 years ago. It kind of goes away and then comes on strong with Galileo 400 years ago. And most of what we really come to understand about the world and how we've really learned to change the world for the better has come in the last, not just 400 years, but really the last 100 years. I mean, mm-hmm. we've doubled our lifespan just about thanks to medical science. Most of the major things we know about gene theory, going to the moon, you, you name it, the Internet, it's, it's less than a century. Um, and that's the scientific method. And you need the scientific method. You need the idea of replicable results and double-blind testing. You have to figure that out if you want to figure out cause and effect in the world because human beings are lousy observers. We're all terrible observers. The more We learn more and more every day about the malleability of memory and the fallibility of memory. And that, you know, I, I wrote an essay last week on uh, randy.org that about called um, the people's skepticism because I just sat on a criminal jury and we had all kinds of evidence we looked at so-called circumstantial evidence DA evidence scientific evidence um, and we also had eyewitness testimony and I felt the eyewitness testimony despite the tradition uh, that that the culture has attached of uh, the level of value that pop culture has attached to the eyewitness testimony over the millennia um, that I felt that was the least significant and important testimony because it's so unreliable, right? Uh, and so, so the thing about it is, if you're having a, suffering a long drought and then one night, you know, after a year you dance and then it rains, you end up dancing for rain for the next millennia without the scientific method because that's magical thinking. That's ca- that's the best you can do for cause and effect, right? You have to tr- you have to do double blind testing and replicable results to figure out that that's not what made it rain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not we're wired the other way, and that's why even people who are rational and scientific end up believing in something weird very often because it. It is our nature to think that way. It is our nature to find connections. It's our nature to think we know who's calling when the phone rings. It's our nature to think that we had a precognitive dream that came true because we forget the other 10,000 dreams that didn't come true. It's our nature. We're wired to think this way. It's a survival skill, but it also works against us. And the conversation you were referring to, you know, when it comes to religion, I think that all the power of religion comes from the afterlife, from the notion of the afterlife. Without The afterlife is the big carrot and the stick. And if you haven't got that, you got religion's got nothing to offer, really. Um, that can't be offered in every other stripe of life. You don't need God to have a soup kitchen. You don't need right. religion to be charitable. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, the the one thing, the big brain is probably an accident of evolution. The big brain evolved as we developed better eyes, for example, so that we could see on the plains and so that we could hunt and we could communicate and hunt socially. So there's all these reasons the brain kept growing. It served us in that, in that uh, environment in, and in our way of life um, as, as, as animals. And then somehow all that wiring bursts forward. It reaches some critical mass and it creates this thing accidentally called consciousness. And the thing that comes with consciousness among many others elements like, like cause and effect thinking, like magical thinking, but the big thing that comes that's unprecedented in the, in the non, pretty much unprecedented in, in the non-human animal kingdom is an awareness of mortality. Yeah, That's the thing. And, you know, 
uh, Neanderthal man buried his dead with food and tools 25,000, 30,000 years ago, right? Yeah. Now, we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but he was probably had something to do with the afterlife. So when suddenly you have fear of death that you're living with every day, how do you combat that? Well, you probably combat it by thinking about God's having an interest in your life mm. and giving you another chance. Right. Uh, and so I think that, you know, consciousness may well, I, had, I, 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 I pitched this to my friend Dan Dennett once, the philosopher, and uh, he kind of gave it a nod and said, yeah, maybe. We, uh, we actually talked about it for a while. But, um, you know, I, I think it could turn out that consciousness, because of this, of this element of mortality, uh, turns out to be maladaptive. Right, because people talk about the the dinosaurs being unsuccessful. Well, yeah, unsuccessful after 350 million years on the planet. How long have humans been here? Even if you go past Homo, even if you go before the Australopithecines, what are we talking about? Six or seven million years. That's a blink of the eye in geologic time. Now the scientific method, 2,000 years or 400 years, doesn't even register a blink. So we haven't been here very long, and we're certainly doing a number on the planet. Uh, and it may come down to that consciousness was not such a good idea after all, <laughs> and the conscious creatures yeah. that we are end up dying out one of countless ways, whether we poison ourselves, blow ourselves up, or however we do it, uh, and then the, and then the world will go on filled with countless species that share many of our traits sure. except the trait of consciousness right. and mortality right. which, and, and awareness of mortality. Which, of course, we consider to be the pinnacle of evolution. Right, right. right. Well, because, 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 and of course, when you talk about of evolution, evolution has no goal and right. it does, there is no higher or lower right. achievement, but it is, it is defining in the way because human imagination and all of that thinking about cause and effect and the possible outcomes and thinking about the future, all of those things contribute to human imagination and enable us to not to envision the world the way that we want it, we'd like it to be, and then make it over to suit that vision. And that's certainly unique and, and we've accomplished great things. I'm not I'm not anti human. We've you know, we've we've a great art, great human art that non human animals have never accomplished. Great technology, great science and, and and we do have phenomenal understanding about the universe that's undreamed of, even you know, even a few centuries ago. And I think that's fabulous. I mean, we, you know, once Arnold Penzias was able to measure, discover the measuring the radiation from the Big Bang, you know, so that you could pin that down within a fairly close amount of time, that's, 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 that's quite remarkable that how much we know about the universe. But the same unique uh, traits of this human brain that enable us to gain that phenomenal knowledge can also be our enemy. And it's why not only we kill each other over our imaginary friends in the sky, uh, but it's also why we waste billions of dollars a year on homeopathy and, uh, and other you know, nonsensical ideas um, and pay money to psychics and all of this stuff that's, that's, that's not real, right? You know, H.L. Mencken said the costliest of all follies is to believe passionately in the palpably not true. <laughs> all right. That's a beautiful, a beautiful line to end this on. Uh, we've got Neil Strauss and Duncan Trussell and a bunch of other people waiting for us downstairs. So 
I'm really sorry. I fucked up because I would, I, I could go for another hour easy uh, with this, but we'll have to end it there. Thank you very much. It was uh, my pleasure. Let's, hey, what's, uh, what's your let's website? Jamie, oh, it's, so it's honestliar.com. H o n e s t l i a r. Honestliar.com. I'm not. I'm not just a close-up magician. I'm also a stage mind reader. I'm also a corporate speaker. I speak a lot about. Uh, subjects, uh, especially in the IT sector, about uh, you uh, about uh, interface design and user experience. I talk about creativity to all kinds of uh, organizations, and uh, you can find out all about that at honestliar.com. And as far as on the skeptical side of the world, you can read my blog uh, and find out about the James Randi Educational Foundation at randy.org. All right, thanks a lot, Jamie. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.